This podcast may contain explicit language and feel free to use explicit language when you review the gist on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. It's Thursday, September 12th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. YouTube personality PewDiePie has withdrawn his offer to give $50,000 to the Anti-Defamation League. And my major reaction is, I am upset with having to know who PewDiePie is. Now, Felix Arvid Ulf Schellberg, that is a guy worth knowing. That is PewDiePie's real name, which I do not want to know. I do not want to hear about PewDiePie via text, speech, or just content. Let us consider the general category of content. Don't want to know about PewDiePie. Just like you should be resentful of having to know, intimately know who Trump's three national security advisors have been. After all, Obama's national security advisors, James Jones and Tom Donilon, were probably not on your radar. Then he ended with Susan Rice as his national security advisor, which you probably did know, and that's fine. We should also note that on an interim basis, there was acting chief Elizabeth Woolridge Grant. No, there wasn't, because Elizabeth Woolridge Grant is the real name of Lana Del Rey. And I do not want to have to know who Lana Del Rey is. I'm good. She sings. That's fine. You like her? Good for you. She apparently did not retract a donation to the ADL, but my not knowing is all I have. That's what protects me and my last few modicums of unsullied unimposed upon brainwaves. Maybe you don't care about some of the things that I like caring about. For instance, did you know that the United States national basketball team lost a big international competition yesterday? Did you know that, Daniel? Daniel shaking his head. No, no, he did not know that. And you know what? Good. Good for Daniel. If he didn't know, and if you didn't know, it's probably because you didn't care. He doesn't care. And not caring is great. You're doing the Lord's work by not caring. Here are my rules of thumb care about what you want to care about, care some about what you need to care about, a little Brexit, sure, prorogging, don't sweat it. That some version of democratic theft is going on in North Carolina, you should care. The exact nature of the theft, only if you'd like. The Alabama Sharpie thing was an interesting test case. You'd be fine not caring. I thought this for days and days, but then Trump made sure that each and every one of us knew what a ham-handed, match-botching bloviator he is. Well, if you insist, Mr. President, I gotta care. So should you care about the Democratic debate tonight? Because there is one. Sure, you should. That it's going on and that some things will happen. But do you need to know that Cory Booker really owned the stage or that Andrew Yang kind of needed to seize the moment, which are two direct critiques from last time. Nah, you're good. How about the fact that Joe Biden seems to be losing it? Well, I hope you do care about that, because that is the topic of my spiel. But first, John Lovett is a co-host of Pod Save America. He has his very own podcast. Who doesn't? Love it or leave it is the name of that. I'm more in the former camp. John came by to talk about his upcoming show at Radio City. Yes, the music hall, that Radio City, not a uh, cut rate discount electronic store off of Times Square run by a couple of Armenian brothers. That was the old Radio City. This is the music hall, Radio City. And John and I also talked about democratic politics and the perils of panel discussions with insufficient pushback. So I tried to provide all the pushback I could muster And I told him, if you don't love it, well, the rules of etiquette demand that you pretend to love it. So with that in mind, here's John Lovett. 
When I started listening to the Love It or Leave It podcast, I said, well, how could you how could you not with a name like that? And in fact, not only did it have a title, it had an out. If I did not love it, I would leave it. But I have not left it because it is a weekly compendium of John Lovett of Pod Save America and the Obama White House talking to clever people about the lighter side of politics. No, I mean, it's not really light. Sometimes they go pretty hard at some of the people on Fox News. John Lovett is here in advance of his performance at Radio City Music Hall, which will be when? The 12th? The 13th. The 13th. Don't show up on the 12th. You might get the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. I don't have the Radio City schedule, but I do have John Lovett with me. Hello, John. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for matching my energy. I got it. <laughs> Isn't that the point? Okay. John, uh, okay. I, do, I do so enjoy your show. Oh, thank you. Both your shows. Thank you. Yet I have said, I'm, I'm, I'm starting, I'm charging out of the gate here with okay. a critique. Wow. I have said that I don't know if this trend of three people agreeing with each other is the best trend in terms of interesting radio slash podcast listening and getting to the truth. What say you, sir? Wow. You could say sometimes you have four people agreeing sometimes, with each other. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> four people. We've even at, at times mm -hmm. had five people. Oh, but uh, the minion of agreement. So first of all, I would say there's a difference between having a few liberals around the table and having a few people that agree on everything around the table. Uh -huh. Yes, it is true. We all are people who come at things from a liberal perspective. We don't always agree. I think of Pod Save America, love it or leave it. This is about the big conversation liberals are having amongst each other about how to fight back against Trump and the forces that enabled someone like Trump. And we see it as an on-ramp for people who are either just committed liberals who want to be involved or people who are maybe not so involved in politics before Trump or trying to learn about it and, and some disaffected people who don't understand what politics is or why it should be a part of their lives. And one great access point to that is not people bickering around a table, but people having a friendly conversation because they're friends about some of the most important issues facing the country the way they would talk about them when there weren't microphones. There are times, and I can get specific if you want, there are times when, when in general, like-minded people reinforce each other ideas. And I, as the listener, say, well, what about this? It goes unaddressed. And I wonder, well, wouldn't, wouldn't you benefit from someone injecting a note of uh, disagreement, uh, at least as a touchstone, to make your argument stronger? I think that that has real value. <laughs> and I think w one of the things that we should be challenging ourselves to do, and I think we do it on the show, you know, we're not going to listen. You're a smart guy. You're listening. You're thinking of stuff we're not thinking of. That's right. right? But... <laughs> I'd like to think that in the moment, we try to challenge each other. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to listen to a show, and I don't listen to any shows, where it's a bunch of people who aren't being intellectually dishonest, who are just trying to kind of put out the liberal message or the conservative message, more likely to be the conservative message, uh, without being critical, without, without using their intellectual faculties. I'd like to think that we try to challenge ourselves, challenge our, challenge our uh, preconceived notions, and try to admit when we don't know the answers, when we're just sort of offering a thought and opinion when we're truly not sure. One of the, you know, we've been having a debate about impeachment. I think John and Dan uh, saw it as the right thing to do. I think Tommy was the last of us to come on board thinking it was the right thing to do politically. Cautious, well, you know, more taking just, the temperature. No, I think it was, more, it was about being mercenary. It was about saying, look, let's just be honest. Uh, we, we took, this bias is something everyone talks about all the time, not a left or right bias, but a bias towards believing your policy preferences are the correct political uh, uh, strategy. Yeah. That is a classic bias. It even might have a name. I don't even know what it is. Does it have a name? That bias? Yeah, I think it's called MSNBCitis. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. We're having fun. But the, uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, 
you know, we would challenge our own challenge each other. You know, is is impeaching Donald Trump the morally courageous and correct thing to do? That to us, I think, was quite obvious. Sure. But there was a real debate about whether it was the right thing to do politically. Right. Maybe maybe what, you know, some of these moderates and these sort of uh, establishment Dems, these skittish people. Maybe they have a point. Eek a mouse. Eek a mouse. The mouse of a Republican majority in the Senate. <laughs> you know, one thing, uh, you know, today there is now an ongoing impeachment inquiry out of the Judiciary Committee. They've basically said as much in their efforts to get Trump documents via the court system. And then Steny Hoyer has asked, is there an impeachment inquiry? He says, no, there's an investigation. That's very frustrating. He's very, very D triple C Steny Hoyer right there. <laughs> so those are the kinds of things we're talking about. And, and those are places where liberals don't all agree. You worked with Joe Biden a, a bit, a bunch. Tell me how much. Honestly, not very much. You know, I was a speechwriter for President Obama. That was mostly my exposure was, you know, working on speeches and for the president. I didn't have too much day to day contact with with Biden. Does he seem cognitively different from when you were there? I, I again, you know, we talked to Joe Biden for an hour. Joe Biden has not come on Pod Save America as part of our presidential candidate series. But we talked to him for a long time, I guess about a year ago, a little more than a year ago. We talked to him about a whole host of issues, talked about his cancer initiative. You know, Joe Biden is Joe Biden. He is. He was loquacious. He went on at length. He was charming. He was kind. He took a bunch of photos. You know, that's the Joe Biden I know. Whether or not he has lost a step, I honestly don't know. I I don't know the difference between a candidate who is just prone towards saying the wrong thing sometime, which he's done for a very long time, and a candidate who's a little bit older. You know, Donald Trump has lost a step. That to me is pretty clear. I I just don't know. And I think the the, to me, what I I see is a, a test for that campaign. This campaign needs to put Joe Biden out there. He needs to be out there a lot and he needs to prove those critics wrong. So in the upcoming debate, if he says things like, well, my time's up and struggles to say Julian Castro's name, there were gaffes. There have always been gaffes. But I've analyzed it as in the past, the gaffes were things he really wanted to say and then did say, and then maybe he regretted saying them. But they were in from his mind to his lips, not a lot of disconnect. Now it seems that there is a processing problem going on. I can't diagnose cognitive decline from where I am, but it clearly seems that something is going on with him. Yeah, I don't know. You don't see that? I, I don't know. Do I think it's a legitimate question for a yeah. candidate that has that is a bit older and who has you know made a bunch of, I think, misstatements in the early part of this campaign? Sure. To me, like, put Joe Biden out there. He's got to do these debates. He's got to do more interviews. He's got to do more campaign stuff. They can't hide him. Uh, because to me, lose a step, not lose a step. Donald Trump is is inexhaustible. Yes. He is going to be tireless. He is a man in his 70s with no aptitude, no discipline, no self, no regard for anyone but himself. But his ego is on the line. He recognizes, he sees every attack on him, every critique as a personal slight. And at that moment, he comes alive. He speaks for two hours at length. He is relentless, chaotic. He is actually pretty adaptable. And I think sometimes liberals in their disdain for him, disdain I share completely, don't enjoy thinking about his skills. Mm -hmm. And those are the skills he brings to the table. Joe Biden at his absolute best is going to have to fight like hell to believe, beat Donald Trump. And so uh, to me, this primary is for him to prove that he's at his best. Okay. And that's it. Since you've been in the Democratic Party, are party stalwarts more in favor of something akin to purity tests? Is that a bigger part of being a Democrat than it was in the past? I think one of the lessons people have taken away, I think correctly from the Obama years is, do not presume that you can meet meet these Republicans in the middle and that you will get credit for your good faith and your efforts. Uh, that to me is one of the, and it's, I think it's a, a valid lesson. You know, Obamacare is a compromise. 
It's a compromise of a compromise. And it was a good thing to do for the country. It has helped millions of people. It was an incredible fight. The stealing of the Supreme Court seat, the uh, the the delegitimizing of Barack Obama, all of that, I think, led to a lot of people to say, you know what? We're going to we're not going to trim our sails, try to impress these people anymore. We're going to say what we're for. And they're going to call us socialists no matter what we do. It's something Buttigieg has said a a number of times. And to me, that is that is the liberation of Trump, because he's going to say the worst thing about you possibly. It's the culmination of what Republicans have been doing for a decade. So why not just say what we're for? Now, is that a purity test? I don't know. But it's saying that the political realities have changed because you don't need to couch what you believe because they're going to attack you no matter what you do. I want to ask you a general question about a phenomenon I see more and more, which is tied up with the idea of the Overton window and how to negotiate, because you've been through negotiations. So the premise is, when you start with a position, you need to stake out a maximalist position, maybe even an unrealistic position. And then you argue that, you know, getting to 100% carbon neutral by 2030 is indeed unrealistic, even though the scientists say it is. But this is a necessary tactic, because the way politics works is you start from there and then you will eventually get to a good position um, from somewhere in the middle. However, I see a lot of evidence where that's not how politics works. What do you think? What are some of the evidence you think of that not working? I think ways that it doesn't work is that you win elections and push through your agenda. And it has nothing to do with starting with any position that uh, is other than the one you want. And I also think if you look, I mean, I've been studying a lot of the New Deal, and that's not how much of the New Deal legislation was pushed through. I think sometimes we think, oh, you know, if you want to the Overton, move the Overton window, then you need to stake out this maximal position so that you can later come back and compromise. There's there's two issues I have with it. One, you also have to believe what you're advocating for because mm-hmm. people will see right through you. And you have to make a compelling case for the thing you actually want to do. Also, sometimes it's there's multiple people on this team. I mean, one of the things I think that's been really exciting is the way that people like AOC and some of the new liberal members and more le- more left members of Congress have moved the Overton window by pushing a Green New Deal, by pushing the Democratic candidates on the Sunrise Movement has done a great job of pushing the candidates to the left on climate. And I think it's been a really good thing. I thought, you know, Jay Inslee, I think one of the most important confrontations we had in the in the debate so far was Jay Inslee pushing Joe Biden. You know, it, these debates end up in rhetoric, but there is actually a real substantive debate under that, which is. Okay, Joe Biden has agreed to the targets and I you know, I'm not a climate expert, whatever it is, by 2050 to 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 be carbon neutral, whatever the exact target is, I don't know. It's the car, it's a target shared by the IPCC, it's the target that Inslee's plan mm-hmm. had, others have gone further, but regardless, the the actual substance of the debate was Joe Biden needs to set interim targets to get there. But the reality is you can't get to 2050 unless you've set the interim targets along the way. So he was pushing Joe Biden to admit the actual implications of his plan when for political reasons he is worried about actually doing that. I think that's a really important debate. And that is a debate where the Overton window shifts because Jay Inslee is a climate candidate. He sets those benchmarks and then he pushes the other candidates to come along. So to me, it's we're doing this together, right? The The Democratic standard bearer doesn't always have to be the one with the maximal position uh, for us to have that argument in Congress, right? To You know, that that's like a... Listen, you know, it's not me. It's not me. I got these people. And I can't. I, I would love to. I mean, this is something that Republicans have done incredibly well with their Freedom Caucus for years. Something that that Boehner did. It's something that Ryan did, which is, look, I'm reasonable. I'm a reasonable guy. But look at these nuts behind me. I got to I got to deal with these fucking nuts. Uh, so that's one way I think it actually does work. OK. What are your favorite games to play on Love It or Leave It? So <laughs> we've been doing one. One of the best games we ever did was 
uh, we took a poll of uh, the most common words people use to describe Trump uh-huh. and then forced people to guess. That was really great. Uh, we played the match game with uh, Chrissy Teigen and John Legend. Oh, good. That was a blast. Wait, newlywed or match? Newlywed. Newlywed, yes. Newlywed. We played match game. Yeah. You know what? We've... <laughs> We've uh, Did you have been inspired by bom, so many bom, games. Bom, no, bom, I don't. Bom, 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 no, we don't get, we don't get Are you a big down. game show fan? You know, I used to watch Prices Right whenever I was sick. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And we used to watch Jeopardy at night. Yeah. And actually, Jeopardy on, on Long Island it would air at six on the local, on a different local cha- yeah, channel. Yeah, Channel Fifty Five LIW. Sure. You know what I'm talking. You know yeah, of course. You're say I said I'm Oceanside. Oh, Come that's on. Right, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so you could watch it at six and then be really ready uh-huh. for the proper seven p.m. ABC <laughs> really airing. ready. You, you just, know the answer. You're just ready. Yeah. You know, you're just ready. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, we have a, it's um, it's fun. You know, we, we quiz the audience. We do OK Stop where we kind of break down clips of Fox News. We're going to have Jesus and Miro. Stacey Abrams. We have a big, we're going to have a big announcement with her at Radio City on Friday night. She's running. <laughs> <laughs> Not that big. <laughs> Okay, calm down. That's it is it is about a it is about her current work. Okay. For the record. Yeah. Uh, she's running for something. <laughs> she's 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 running hard to help fix our democracy. I see. Via fun games at Radio City Music Hall on the Love It or Leave It show. You bet. John Lovett is the host of Love It or Leave It. He's one of the voices uh, trying to save America through a pod, a titularly named Pod Save America. And if you are in New York City on September 13th, on Friday, se- this Friday. <laughs> on Friday, on. Se- on September 13th, there might be tickets available because Radio City Music Hall is a gigantic venue. They have the NFL you. draft there. It's yeah. getting close. It's getting it, close. It, it, really it really may sell out. Right. It really may. That's awesome. Congratulations, Pretty cool. Pretty John. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Joe Biden has been many things in life, a senator, a vice president, a lawyer, a widower, a many, many, many time presidential candidate, a go-to running gag in The Onion, and now a meme. And not just one meme, because the idea is if you see a Joe Biden video anywhere on the internet where videos are served, you can be assured that that video is in the service of Joe Biden saying something mm, that's a little off. You've heard about most of these. Here is Vice's Evan McMorris-Santoro on CBS. This is just piling up and piling up and piling up for Biden. Um, The very first time I saw him go out and campaign was his very first day of campaigning in uh, Iowa. And on his first two stops, he said, back when I was president, which of course he never was. This is a thing where it's like, are voters going to care or not? We don't really know. Yeah. But, the, but, but as long as it becomes a central story of his campaign is him trying to constantly explain why he says Keene, New Hampshire's in Vermont, or what he said the thing about, about Obama being assassinated, or when I was president, or anything else, um, that's more of a concern, I think, than just one poll. Is the fact, though, that voters know Joe Biden because he's such a known quantity, this is not something that's particularly new, this notion of gaffes, is that something that could perhaps, if you are the Joe Biden campaign, you're sort of banking on that this is the idea that voters already have of him and that it's not necessarily this cause for concern, despite what you're pointing out here, which is this sort of scrutiny um, of those gaffes. Oh, absolutely. Nobody would expect uh, Joe Biden campaign not to include some gaffes. It's sort of a normal yeah. thing. And there's some arguments whether or not we live in a post-gaffe world. I mean, we are, our president currently is sort of a nonstop gaffe machine as well. Well, I wouldn't say that having elected Donald Trump 
makes this a post-GAF world, more of a perma-GAF condition. We are at GAFCON 5. We've gaffed up the whole damn thing and have been pretty much gaffed from the jump ever since this gaffing guy swore on a gaffing Bible. It's pretty gaffed up. So here's the thing. This isn't about gaffes, at least not how I think of gaffes, which are essentially misstatements. It's not about the things that Biden intends to say and then does say, but then it turns out that he shouldn't have said. It's about clear evidence that his mental processing is suboptimal, especially as compared to the baseline condition of the Joe Biden we've known for about 40 years. Struggling to make a point, struggling to end a point, meekly surrendering your time, failing to be coherent as you try to nail the exact name Julian Castro, who, by the way, was the person he was talking to. It's not a gaffe, it's a flaw. The flaw is that if you examine the sentence, you are led to believe I think compellingly that there is a problem with the machine generating the sentences. Now it's odd because I'll admit in the beginning of the race when Biden was mostly silent and his record was mostly the thing being criticized, I came to his defense. His record is defensible. That being said, the bankruptcy bill pretty much sucked. He did try to greatly expand categories eligible for the death penalty in legislation co-sponsored by Strom Thurmond. But you know, after 40 years passing legislation, you have some good ones, some bad ones. As I've said before, you ask a strong critic of how Biden handled Anita Hill, as I've done with dozens of people casually, not a scientific poll, but I would ask them, hey, did Joe Biden vote for Clarence Thomas? And by the way, did Joe Biden believe Anita Hill? Most of the people I asked got those questions wrong. He didn't vote for Clarence Thomas. He said loudly, proclaimed loudly, convincingly that he believed Anita Hill. Plus, Biden kept Bork off the Supreme Court which more conservatives hate him for than anything he's ever done. So it seemed weird and wrong that he was being tarred with his supposed failures, but never credited with a very bold and important accomplishment as a legislator. Borking Bork, that's what the conservatives call it, keeping him off just for ideology, it wasn't done. Biden did it. And remember who we got instead of Bork? Souter, who wound up being, I would say, just slightly less liberal than Elena Kagan. That's what the stats show. And that's all Joe Biden there. And he's not given credit. So personally, you know, I thought other candidates were better than Biden. I thought Biden would be an acceptable choice. The Biden of the brain processing of, you know, 1986 through 2000, I don't know, 12, 16. But it did hearten me a little bit that voters seemed not to care about what I'll call the woke gaze that was being applied to Biden. Although I knew what was going on, that he was benefiting in general from voters not paying a tremendous amount of attention. They knew they liked him. They knew they weren't following every accusation that stemmed from some policy position he took in 1974. I do believe, let me say this, there was also that brief period when he was being strongly criticized for touching women against their will, hair sniffing, shoulder rubbing. And I I do believe that most voters were very well aware of what the accusations were and did not care as much as that portion of the Democratic Party, which thought that should be disqualifying. But what it all means is that right now, Biden isn't benefiting from being a conscious choice on the part of the party. He's benefiting from, in general, ignorance. 
So here's how Politico reports it. They set up a dynamic where Joe Biden doesn't understand technology and isn't extremely young and isn't extremely attuned to social justice and issues of race. And those characteristics are all of the press corps. So he's being covered by a press corps who has different worldviews than he does. And Politico writes, inside the Biden campaign, it is the collusion between these two worlds that advisors believe explain why his White House run often looks like a months-long series of gaps. For a team in command of the Democratic primary, at least for now, they're awfully resentful of how their man is being covered, and yet supremely confident that they, not the woke press that pounces on Biden's every seeming error and blight in his record, has a vastly superior understanding of the Democratic electorate. Now, I believe the Biden campaign thinks that that's some of the explanation. I don't know if they literally and legitimately think that's all of the explanation, but it is true. And even if it's only partly true, they'll say it's all true that here's the deal. Joe Biden's a realist and the press covering him is woke. Only I think that there is a conflation of enforcing wokeism and a realization of a true cognitive decline. Some of his gaffes were gaffes because he was racially clunky in phrasing. He said, poor kids and white kids. But some are just Biden being off in his mental processing. Yes, a loud but somewhat limited part of the Democratic Party does not like Biden because of what he once thought about race and crime and abortion. But a bigger part of the Democratic electorate will begin to not like how Biden currently thinks. Not what he thinks about, just how he thinks that he is not a sharp, pointed champion for them. In late August, Quinnipiac did a poll, and uh, Biden was first with 33%, and then Warren was second at 19. The Quinnipiac poll had Warren back further than some of the other polls. But this is what I thought was interesting. Quinnipiac also asked, after they got all the potential voters' choices, they also asked, are you paying a lot of attention, a little attention, or some attention? Biden's numbers were evenly divided. A third of his supporters were paying a lot of attention, a third some, and a third a little. But Warren's numbers went way up with the paying a lot of attention crowd. And she was only at 6% with the not paying a lot of attention crowd. So of her 19%, a very small percentage was only among people not paying a lot of attention. Now, you could say lots of voters never pay much attention. But as the campaign goes on, they start to pay more attention. And the trend line is bad for Biden. Because you hear every candidate who is trailing badly and everyone who eventually loses say, well, if we could just get the electorate to pay more attention to us, if we could just get the voters to hear what I'm saying. I've never heard a candidate, a successful candidate say, well, our strategy is if we could just get the voters to pay less attention. I'm a shoe in If these guys tune me out, that's good. And oh, by the way, we're still in the phase of the election that's months away from an actual election, as in votes being cast, and voters pay a lot more attention when voting takes place, which is to say things aren't headed in the right direction for Joe Biden. And it's not about if voters are woke or unwoke. It's about which voters are hitting the snooze alarm and which have put on a pot of coffee and have begun to pay attention. (laughs) 
That's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader never sold out Radio City Music Hall. He did see Michael C. Hall play music more in a cabaret setting than on the radio. The gist. Among voters paying little attention, Tim Ryan's support was high, but followed by the question, why are you bringing up the guy from the Tom Clancy novels? Umpur de Peru, and thanks for listening.